0: Uh, we'll dismiss our school-age kids to the back and we'll follow Ms. Robin back there. And while they're doing that, if you would turn to Exodus chapter 33. That'll be our text for today. Say thanks to Philip and uh, the band um, for leading us in worship through song. I hope your Sabbath season so far has been um, has been good and restful, um, and uh, I want us to uh, remember in our hearts and as we pray uh, for Stephen and uh, uh, Grace Community down there um, in New Orleans as they're dealing with floods and all those things and all the others that are uh, affected by the uh, by the hurricane. And I also want us to remember and pray for um, Covenant Shreveport as they're meeting together with uh, Haynes Avenue for a joint service today. I think Weston's preaching there, and we want to pray for them, for God to do a mighty work in, um, in and amongst them. We're going to try and attempt to finish the book of Exodus today. And uh, don't worry, it's only 16 chapters. Uh, Someone reminded me that I uh, had said that during Sabbath, the sermons would be shorter. um, And that will start next week with Jason's sermon. Uh, It just kind of ends in this... um, and we could, yes, preach many things about this, but as Jason and I have been praying and preparing our hearts for what's next, and I've been on a little um, study break, at least from uh, preaching. You know, we met in our MCs last week, and uh, the week before that, uh, we had a guest, Aaron Clayton, with us preaching. And so I've just had some time to kind of wrap my mind and heart around the end of this book and then we're praying towards what's next and what we're going to uh, be uh, teaching through as we wrap up the summer and enter into the fall. And um, the task of preaching, of course, is just, if I can be honest with you, it's intimidating and overwhelming because you're literally taking the word of God and you're trying to break down these uh, timeless truths, these... This inexhaustible resource of God's word into something that we might remember when we go home today. Something that we might refer to around the lunch table. Something that might capture our mind's attention and heart's affection. And ultimately, of course, this is the work of the Holy Spirit. And I pray that he would do this unique work in your own heart and mind today. Would you pray with me, please? And would you ask the Holy Spirit to do that very thing that he would speak to you? Lord, I acknowledge that my lips of uh, flesh fall so far short, but I'm thankful that you choose to use us and your phrases, just these jars of clay, broken pottery, and yet you put this, the richest... thing in the world, the gospel inside of us, I pray as your truth goes forward today that it would bring conviction and encouragement and healing and lead to even salvation as we believe it and trust it and apply it. It's in your name that we pray, amen. Throughout this long series, I've said uh, again and again that Exodus is about a God who makes himself known. But what good is a God who makes himself known if he's not also a God who loves us, who cares for us, and who is with us? It's one thing to know that he hears. Didn't we talk about that in Exodus 2 and 3, that God saw the plight of the people of Israel as they were in slavery? It says that God knew that that he heard their cries. It's one thing for him to know and to hear. It's another thing that he is with us. He's made himself known to Moses and Pharaoh and the Egyptians and the Israelites and to the nations. He's revealed who he is and what he's like. Showing he's a God of power and signs and wonders. The God of Israel's deliverance and of ours. He's the God who makes himself known. And yet in this story he's given these people, he's taking them out of uh, Egyptian slavery with the, where they've been for hundreds of years. And he has taken them to a place that he had promised Abraham hundreds of years before this. He's taken them to a place called the promised land. Known in scripture as the land flowing with milk and honey. Always makes me think of the Veggie Tales about this. when they're like, ooh, sticky. Um, sorry, sorry. It's just me, I just want to... I don't even know if my kids watch VeggieTales. It's something I do. Um, When we get to chapter 40, the last chapter of the book, it's been a year. Ten months they've been camped in front of this Mount Sinai, also called Mount Horeb, the place where God had originally appeared to Moses in the burning bush and said, Hey, Moses, i got a plan. we got to get these people out, and I'm going to do it through you. They're back there. You remember the Ten Commandments that came, and we talked about those for many weeks. And here we have this huge change in the people of Israel. For the first time, we're going to see in chapter 33, they become desperate for the Lord's presence. Let's read it. In verse 1 in chapter 33. And the Lord said to Moses, depart and go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring I will give it. And I will send an angel before you and I will drive out the Canaanites and Amorites and Hittites and Perizzites and Hivites and Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey But I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. A God who makes himself known is not very helpful, helpful unless he's a God who is with us. None of this would matter to Moses or the Israelites if God was not also a God who was there. And that's our God. He's not absent or indifferent which is how many people, maybe even some of you, see him. Our God is a God who makes himself known, and that's good news. But only if he's a God who is also there, who is also with us, that we would see the culmination of that, right? When he would send Emmanuel, God in the very flesh being with us. We see here the blessing and essential nature of God's presence. And yet God has laid this consequence to their sin. And if you don't know kind of how these things work or you've um, forgotten kind of the, uh, the line of, of, of Exodus is in, in Exodus 20 you remember that they get the Ten Commandments. And Moses and God gives them verbally And it scares the people a little bit because they're at the foot of the mountain. And Moses is kind of halfway up the mountain. And the presence of God is in this thick glory cloud on top of the mountain. And there's loud thundering and lightning and all these things. And they can't have any more. So they say, you know what, enough, Moses. You go up and get the rest and let us be here. Well, Moses is up there for about 40 days. And immediately, the people lose trust in God and lose trust in their servant, their leader, Moses. And they make this golden calf. This is the consequence we're reading in chapter 33 to the sin that had happened in the previous chapters. To get a little context, let's, let's look at that real quick. In chapter 32, in verse 1, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come back down the mountain, he's up there communing with God, getting all the commandments, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, remember Aaron is Moses' brother, also serving as the, the priest and the mouthpiece of Moses to the people, up, make us gods who shall go up before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And so Aaron said to them, "We'll take off the rings and the gold that are in your ears, of your wives and your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me." Remember, this gold, if you would remember in the context of it, was given by the by through God's power from the Egyptians to them as they uh, left out of Egypt. And we see Aaron just completely blow it, Moses' right-hand man, Moses up the mountain with God, enjoying God every day, having his soul healed, writing down some of the history of what God's done, and then God interrupts their time and says, Moses, it's probably time to go back down the mountain because these people have made an idol. Verse 7 of chapter 32. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people who brought you up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I have commanded them. And they have made for themselves a golden calf. And have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen these people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation out of you. Basically, God's saying this group of people, they are a worthless cause. The subsequent verses you see, Moses crying out to God, standing in the gap for these people. This is before he had gone down the mountain to see their increasing wickedness. And he prayed, and God relented, and did not destroy them all. However, he did kill off their ringleaders and those that were leading them into sin. And he did send a plague as a consequence for sin. and He warned them that there might be more plagues to come. Then Moses comes down the mountain, and you can read all of this in chapter 32. Saul, uh, uh, the golden calf, smashed the tablets to the ground took the calf and cut it up and put it in their drinking water and made them drink it. And all of this is what leads to the consequences of chapter 33, maybe the most serious consequence. God says, you know what, because of your prayers, Moses, I'm still going to lead you into the land I promise you. I'm just not going with you. In verse 4, when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. And no one put on his ornaments, for the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, you are stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornament from Mount Horb onward. You remember way back in chapter 24 after the commandments were given initially and God gave those commandments to the people, that was the covenant renewal. This is the sermon lesson preached several weeks ago. And over and over, God would send this command and the people said, of course we will do this, we'll commit our life to this. Yes, Lord, we're going to do this. And yes, Lord, we're going to obey. And yes, Lord, we're going to do this. Yet in chapter 32 that we just looked at, they broke nearly all all ten of the commandments. They made a graven image out of the gold jewelry and then ascribed to it worth. They actually credited it, this calf, to what God had actually done. As they said, hey, look, this is the God, this image, this golden calf of what brought you up out of Egypt. Verse 33, God is so angry that he tells them that he's going to keep his promise, but he can't be near them or he's going to hurt them. Maybe you've certainly not as serious, but you know the attitude of that. If your kids ever got on your nerves to such an extent that you were like, listen, I'm not a parent anymore. Please do not come in here, or I'm going to hurt you. Ashley and I's first uh, fight we ever got into, a day back from our honeymoon, we were living in a 450-square-foot home, which should cause any any marriage, some uh, marital conflict, and Ashley's upset with me for something, and I was like, all right, babe, we got to talk this out, and she's kind of trying to dodge me in this little bitty house, and finally, I got her in a corner, and I grabbed her arm and said, all right, babe, what's going on? We got to talk this out, and she just kind of grunted at me, and in that grunt, she was saying, similar to what God is saying here, "Uh, I cannot be around you, lest least I hurt you. Um, She needed some time to process the emotions There's something serious in verse 4 that we miss if we just rush past that. One, the fact that Israel thought that this was a disastrous word. It says in verse 4, when, they, when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned and no one put on his ornaments. Don't underestimate the significance of this if we're all honest. I'm not sure that we as the church would be automatically devastated. If God had promised to us, hey, I'm going to give you all my promises that I had set forth. And yet you can keep everything that you had from Egypt. You can worship your little gods if you want to, and I'm still going to deliver on my promises. Maybe we would feel if God didn't go up with us, well, you know, that's an inconvenient word, you know. That changes our plans a little bit, but, you know, God's done some good stuff, and we've got this great trip in front of us, and we're still going to have the promised land, and we got an angel. There's going to be an angel. What is that going to be like? This is a little bump in the road. God won't be with us, but we'll still get into this amazing place and our lives will be better. The Israelites have given a sincere and wise and very appropriate response to this disastrous word. We're going to the promised land, okay, and an angel's gonna come and drive out our enemies that are occupying that land, but God isn't going with us, and that is devastating. It reminds me of the question I've heard from John Piper. I think I have this on the screen. If you could have heaven... With all of your family and friends there, if you could be re- reunited with your loved ones and have all the food you loved and none of the pounds, see beautiful sunsets and have golf and beaches and mountains and fishing or whatever you're into, but if Jesus wasn't there, would it still be heaven? Of course, the question is slightly unfair because Scripture says every good and perfect gift actually comes from God, but it's still a question that would cause us to pause, Does our heart's affection follow after the creator God or the blessings that he gives? Which one would be more devastating to you if God had said, listen, Luke, you can have have all the blessings and all the great things I've ever created, but you're not going to have me? Or would we say, as Moses would pray, God, I don't want the blessings if I can't have you. Would heaven be heaven if Jesus wasn't there? Would you still want to go? What are we really interested in? Do we want God or we want His gifts? Would we be happy to go to the promised land whether God would go with us or not? Truth be told, many of us might even prefer that, that we could have the promises of God without a burden of relationship with him. Sign me up. A relationship with God, man, that takes work and time. and He asks things of me, and he's always convicting of sin. I don't want the relationship or the commitment, but can I get his promises? Like the people that are following Jesus around in John chapter 6, and they see all the food multiplied, and he goes across the way to get time with his disciples, and they follow him, and they find him. You remember? He's like, God, we, we want more food, man. Jesus give us more food. They wanted the blessings but not himself personally. And that's where Jesus has the, you know, the, the weird message about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And... Meaning that my people are going to want to walk with me. They want the relation with me more than they want the stuff that I can bring. No relationship, no commitment, but could I get his promises? Could I get the good stuff? Could I get the blessings? Can I get into Canaan without anything else required of me? That's perfect. That's a tailor made American human religion. Let's give the Israelites some credit that they know that this is a disastrous word and they mourn. The second thing they do is obey. You see, they take off their ornaments. Their ornaments talking about their jewelry and their earrings and the things that they had, the, uh, the adornment that they were wearing. And why did they take them off? Perhaps one, that they're mourning. You don't get all dolled up when you're headed to a funeral, when you're in mourning. There's nothing wrong with the jewelry itself, but the jewelry had come from Egypt and was likely associated with the gods of Egypt. You remember the Amon Ra, their god. So the Instead of a cross around their neck, they were probably wearing an image of a frog or something that the Egyptian had worshipped and they had adopted some of that into their own life. Up to this point, the people of Israel really had divided hearts. Didn't they though? Don't you remember that is the story that when they were inconvenienced even in the little bit that the water was bitter or they only had the manna and they wanted meat and They would just cry out and complain to God, really complain to Moses. And Moses would say, God, who are these grumbling people? The Israelites had a divided heart. They had idols in their hearts. What Calvin says of us, apart from Christ, that our hearts are an idol factory. Get rid of one, smash one idol, and our heart just seems to create another one. They had this divided heart. They were pursuing the promises of God, and they liked this idea of God's favor being on them, but they didn't want to sacrifice all the other things that they knew. They had grown up in Egypt. They had grown up around these other gods. They had grown up worshiping these little G gods. They had made shelves of worship to them. And now God says in the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other God. Ashley and I are coming up on our 17th wedding anniversary here in a few weeks. I think back on that day, and we made some vows to each other, which included the phrase forsaking all others. You remember that phrase that's in the typical wedding vows that we stood on that day and Ashley said, well, you know, assuming there, you know, I've loved other men in the past and maybe out there somewhere in the galaxy there's more men handsome than you, Luke, but I'm forsaking all of them to commit my life to you. And I said the same thing back to her of the women that I've loved in the past and those that have had a relationship with me. I'm forsaking all of them for you. And In other words, you stand, right, right in front of each other and you say, in front of God and all of the witnesses, that this one is for me, forsaking all others. I like to do little projects around the house. You can imagine if one of my little weekend projects, I'm putting up some kind of shelf in the corner of our living room. And I get this nice little shelf built and I bring in a little tub of things and I begin to put little pictures of past girlfriends on the shelf Things, you know, Valentine's gifts that they had given to me that meant things and cards. She's like, Where, what are you doing? Oh, well, you know, I just, uh, I just wanted to put a little shelf up here of uh, all, the, all the women that I've loved in the past and, you know, things that meant something to me and, you know, just in case if you're ever just a bad wife that I could maybe just look at this shelf and think about what my life would be like with these if I had married them or maybe I could even reach out to these women and... Maybe they can console me in my bad marriage and and I wouldn't be alive today if I did such a thing. I can be honest with you, if, if Ashley wouldn't kill me, her dad would. That would be completely inappropriate, would it not? You know where we're going, right? Most of us, if we're honest, we have a divided heart. We might say one thing with our mouth, this complete allegiance to God, but as soon as he doesn't do what we want, we reach out and worship every other thing else that our world says is trustworthy, be it comfort or fame or money. Allow any little bit of suffering to come into our life, which God might allow for our good and for his glory. And we want to scream out and shake our fist at God. God, how dare would you do this? I'm going to run. I know you say you're the bread of life but I'm going to run to every other source of sustenance I can find. I know you said that you are the river of life and that you would satisfy our thirst, but yet I'm going to, I'm going to go to every other substitute that I can find because, because you're not, you didn't seem to be present and with me. Notice that it would have, that, that these Israelites expressed true, heartfelt Repentance. It says in verse 6, they stripped off their ornaments and not even for a little time, they stripped it off from Mount Hor, Mount Sinai, where they're at now, onward, all the rest of the way to the promised land and surely they would not be perfect. Exodus really is the book about getting them out of slavery in Egypt but the story to the promised land is going to take many, many more books of the Old Testament. From this time forward, they're in a period of mourning for their sins more importantly, they've stripped themselves of these idolatrous associations and they have expressed heartfelt contrition and repentance. It doesn't mean that the Lord is now obligated to go with them. There's still consequences for their sin, certainly. But it does mean that they've realized what they've done and who they really need. They need God and His presence. As a side note, real repentance always comes with tangible action, always. That's why Jesus would say, hey, if you come to the altar and you realize you've got something against your brother, leave the gift. It's not about the gift. You get out there and you restore what's wrong with your brother and sister. That is way more of an act of worship. That is way more an aroma of worship, to me, God says, than us walking down and giving some sort of gift or tithing the basket or shaking the hand or even showing up at this gathering. The real aroma of worship, he says you've got something against someone else you need to go and restore that real repentance comes with tangible action it just does Lazarus I mean um, Zacchaeus as he's been changed what does he do but give back all that he's taken and even multiple times over and again and again you can see this Real repentance comes with tangible action. It's not just us feeling bad that we got caught. It's not just us feeling bad that we're in this lot in life. It's not just just worldly grief. It's relational. I've broken the heart of God. He's forgiven me and yet I withhold forgiveness from others. This kind of thing. It would have been easy... For the people of Israel to keep the gifts of Egypt and receive the gifts that God promised them in verse 1 and 2. And yet they realized their need for the presence of God. Do you see the great irony of idolatry? They wanted a God they could see. That's why they made the golden calf. Hero O oh, Israel, is the gods that delivered you from Egypt. You can see them and dance to them and worship them. You had part in creating them. They wanted a God who could be closer, even right in front of their own eyes. They wanted a God on their own terms. But because they wanted a God on their own terms that they helped make, they're now threatened with so much less of Him. Idolatry is always the pursuit of short term gain for the assurance of long term loss. They thought they were smart, we're going to get more of God. But in the end, they have the thread of so much less than they ever had before. And they realize and they show us today as we look at this, that they were a people desperate for God's presence. Maybe for the first time. Church, can I ask you if you're desperate for God's presence? Not as in an add-on in the margins. Are you desperate for the presence of God? Or are you like the untold multitudes of Christians who enjoy the gifts of God, of salvation, the common graces of air to breathe and water that's drinkable, living on a planet that's inhabitable, but forsaking the giver of those gifts? We see an example if we move forward in verses 7 through 11 of the loss of God's presence. Read it with me. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside of the camp far off from the camp and he called it the tent of meeting and everyone who sought from the lord who sought the lord would go out to the tent of meeting which was outside the camp whenever moses went out to the camp all the people would rise up each would stand at his tent door and watch moses till he had gone into the tent and when moses entered the tent a pillar of cloud remember that was what was leading them guiding them the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak to Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of the cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people could rise and worship each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man would not depart from the tent. The whole business about this tent of meeting might seem like out of place because in uh, verse 12 we're going to see that God starts uh, Moses and God start talking to each other. This is like this parenthetical statement giving us a little context. You might ask why it's here, and you'd get it if you read through the whole thing. We skipped over from chapter 24 to chapter 32 all the instructions of how they were to worship Yahweh, in particular how the tabernacle was to look. What is to be made of and who's going to bring the ministry there and what's going to be inside and where it was supposed to be in the middle of the camp. God was meant to permanently dwell in the midst of his people. That's, that was the goal. The tabernacle would be in the middle and there would be three tribes on either side, all four sides of the tabernacle as the symbolism of God in the center of them. Indeed, that's going to happen when we get to chapter 40 is that the culmination of this actually happens and we're not going to read all of that, but... And 7-11, instead of God permanently dwelling in the midst of the people, we see a temporary tent outside the camp. Maybe you caught that. It said outside or outs like six or seven times there. So these people would see Moses going out to the camp, and they would make these expressions of honor or worship as he went out there from the front of their own tent, and the cloud would settle. The tabernacle... If you read those chapters before, and the ones coming ahead would hold sacrifices of atonement, and the priests and Levites would attend the work there. The Ark of the Covenant would inhabit the tents, literal, literal, a literal dwelling of God as a spiritual center of the Israelites' life. But what would we have here? Some makeshift tent outside the camp, and one person on intimate terms with Yahweh God talking with him face to face don't you love that phrase too in verse 11 as a man speaks to his friend isn't that what we want or what we should want to speak to him as a man to his friend you see very clearly this intimate relationship that Moses still has with the lord but it's in the tent outside the camp and he's the only one that can go in how can a holy god dwell in the midst of sinful people that's a question we're going to see answered throughout the rest of the meta narrative of Scripture. They wanted more of God, but now had, they had a diminished presence of God in their life, and they're devastated. Church, remember. Remember it well. When you try to get God on your own terms, you don't get more of Him, you get far less. Pick up with me in verse 12 now is before Moses is going to make intercession and he's making three requests. His first request is there in uh, 12 through 14. He asked, please be with me. Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, I have found favor in your sight. Please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And God says, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. He says to the Lord Moses, hey, I don't know who this angel is, and I don't know who you're sending. I don't even know what that means. But I want you to be with me. Again, in verse 12, you have said, I know you by name, and I found favor in your sight. If that's true, then I want to have favor. It's a good idea, just as a point of comment, to pray to God based on the things that God has already told you. You see, Moses doing this again and again. When we come as children of God, we can come with boldness into his throne room and remind him of our place. In the meantime, reminding us of our place in his throne family that we have found favor in Jesus Christ that he has chosen us and redeemed us and purposed to be glorified in us and Moses is praying as we ought to pray in these verses he uses the language of knowing six times the language of finding favor in your sight five times in verse 13 he asks, please show me your ways this is Moses's way of saying God would you please be with me We know God by knowing his ways and his statutes and his word, and we don't have time to get into that. It could be its own sermon in itself. God's gracious response in verse 14, he says, I'll be with you and I will give you rest. It's very possible that even Jesus had this passage in his mind when he told the disciples, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Truly, Moses was weary leading this kind of people in the wilderness, camped at Mount Sinai for nearly a year. It's a great reminder to us as a church that there's no lasting rest apart from the knowledge of God, that God is with us. That might be why some of us are so constantly restless about our life and our money and our future and our family and our career. Whether we fit in or don't fit in, because we really don't know that God's presence is with us, that He has promised He will be with us, that He will go ahead of us and He will cover up our backside, and He will come along us alongside us. And he says to Moses, "Moses, I'll answer your prayer. I'm going to be with you." Just like a child taking a small child to a new place. I'm a little weary. First day of school, first day of preschool, you're bringing them in. First day of kindergarten was always a big deal with our family. You know, I, I thought it was just the first day of kindergarten, and it's really the first day of school every year. You know, it's as big a deal. The whole family goes, walks you in until your kid gets in fifth grade. That's not cool anymore. You're not walking anybody in fifth grade. It's like the child walking into another that reaches up, Dad, are you going to be with me? You're coming? Reaches up and grabbing your hand. Such an intimate picture of our relationship between us and God. As we walk through things that scare us. As we get diagnoses from doctors that scare us. As we lose jobs. As our friends walk away from God we have family members that are so far from him as we raise our own kids oh my goodness how many worries and fears come with just raising kids what, what are they going to be like and I don't feel equipped to do this and what about their friends and Claire's going to middle school this year and we're just covering that girl in, in prayer I don't know what praying a hedge of protection really means but we're doing that and we're doing lots of it it's like a child we're reaching up and holding our dad's hand Dad looking down at us saying, it's okay. I got you, buddy. I'm with you. You got nothing to be afraid of as long as I'm with you. Amen? Second request, he asked not just that God would be with us. Verse 15, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring bring us up from here. Man, this is, again, a sermon in and of itself. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not that you are going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people in the face of the earth? Not only is it, please be, please be with me, but Moses, and that's not enough, God, you've got to be with us. Notice the change in the language. He uses the plural form, us, you've got to be with us. Don't run across this. I love this verse. You can highlight it and underline it and circle it. Is it not you're going with us that makes us distinct? Man, this is so good. I wish, I wish we would get this. I wish the churches in our city would get this. It's not what we do or what we wear or this, even how we act. It's that God is with us. That's what makes us Distinct. What distinguished Israel from any other nation? Was it their land? No, they didn't have any land. Was it their status? No, they were, they were just enslaved. Was it their obedience and righteousness? No, they were terrible at that, i.e. the golden calf that they drink. Hardly, right? What set them apart? It wasn't what they had or where they were from or their status or their pedigree or their lineage. It was none of that. What was it? It was that God, the creator of the universe, was with them. This is a strong word for us, church. I wonder how many of us could really say that this is what makes us distinct and this is why we go out into the world and this is why we send missionaries to the very edges of the earth and this is why we sacrifice to give monetarily and to give of our time so that other people might know Christ and we, that's why we share the gospel and we enter into awkward moments with other people and we love really difficult people because God is with us and this is where he leads and that's what makes us distinct. Here, Moses hits on the very one true thing that truly makes God's people distinct God, the God of the universe, is our God. Moses says, Not only do we want you, I want you to be with me, you got to be with us. You said we were a holy people and a priesthood and a holy nation and we were set apart. None of that is true if you're not with us. We didn't come to serve God because he gives us a few things and he gets us out of trouble. When we get in trouble, Moses knows better. He says, no, that did not make us special at all. We want your presence with us. We're not gonna look different than anybody else unless God is with us. His third request in verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing you have spoken to you, you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And Moses said, please show me your glory. The third request. Moses is on a roll. He's just getting more and more and more. Your kid's ever done it to you? Hey, Dad, can I have a popsicle? Yeah, you can have a popsicle. Hey, Dad, can I, uh, can I go spend the night with a friend? Yeah, you can spend the night with a friend. Dad, can I have 20 bucks? No. Push it too far, buddy. Moses Ask God, God, show me your glory. You might think, well, Moses has seen plenty of the Lord's glory. I mean, the, the burning bush, that's pretty incredible. And staff turned into a snake and picked it up and it back into a staff. And then he did it in front of Pharaoh, and it ate the, you know, this he's seen a lot of the glory, and he's seen uh, the He'd been up on top of this mountain in the glory cloud with God. But yet he wants a fuller picture. He wants face to face glory. He wants as much as he can handle. He wants more than the lightning bolt. He wants more than another cloud. He wants more than another burning bush. He wants to see God like he talks to God face to face. He wants to see and encounter him. There's two real points of application, I think, for our family, for our church family first. That Moses understands that he doesn't have a prayer without God and neither do we. Tony Meredith says this, perhaps the greatest problem with the church today is the attempt to do the work of God apart from the presence and power of God. Let that sit for a minute because that's just not talking about an organization. You know, the church is made up of people. One of the greatest problems with the church today, the people today, is the attempt to do the work of God apart from the presence and power of God. Do you realize that? That if you got all the pleasures of this world but lost the presence of God, that you would end up with nothing. Didn't the early church know this? Didn't they pray and pray and pray? No matter what situation Paul's in, he's being beat, he's in a prison, he's something, and what is he doing? He's crying out to God because he knew that God could do more in an instant than he can do with all his strategy and scheming that's possible, and they would pray. Moses doesn't have a prayer without God, and neither do we. Second, others need your abiding presence with God that produces holiness. If Moses would not have interceded on behalf of those people, they would have wandered into the promised land without the presence of God. Theoretically, of course, we know God's sovereign work behind this is all is at all work. Others need your abiding presence with God. I joined uh, Jamie and Julie at the uh, Myanmar Connect where we meet with our missionaries that he adopted people groups that we serve and pray for it. I hope you're praying for in Southeast Asia. It's incredible that these guys would get up. I mean it is so lost over there. I mean whole cities, whole people groups where they only know of one believer. Imagine that kind of darkness. You know, we, we won't share the gospel with our neighbors and we have everything in common with them. We live in the same place and make close to the same money and we speak the same language and yet these people are uprooting their lives and taking their family over and they got to learn culture, they got to learn language, they're living in this place. They can't even get into some of these places and yet they're doing this. One of the guys stood up and he's, one of the things he said, the focus was really on prayer. He said, you know what? We would love for you to bring a team over, but that's not what we really want. We really want you to pray. Yes, bring teams, that's great, but we, we got to have you pray. We need you praying. We need your abiding presence with God more than we need your trips and more than we need your money and more than we need your friendship. We need your, this is them saying to our church, we need your abiding presence with God more than we need anything else. Church, others need your abiding time with God, your abiding presence with God more than they need your skills, more than they need the money that you're going to bring home. Can you think of all the people in your life that need your abiding presence with God more than anything else, certainly your family? My wife needs my abiding presence with God. Because when I'm not abiding with him, I'm in the flesh, and I'm cranky and arrogant and prideful and criticizing My kids need my abiding presence with God when I'm full of forgiveness and love and I'm tender towards them and I'm not snapping at them. My extended family, your extended family, they need your abiding presence with God. Everybody's crazy uncle, right? They they need your abiding presence with God. You're the one crying out on their behalf. You're the one as Moses did for the Israelites, standing in the gap for them. Your neighbors need your abiding presence with God. God has placed you in a very dark place. He's placed you in a neighborhood. Do you know you don't choose your neighbors? God chooses your neighbors. And he's placed you in a house surrounded by some people who don't know Christ. And he's placed you there as a lighthouse on the midst of a, in a very dark place. And he's placed you there that you would stand in the gap for them. And that you would, you would own the spiritual condition of your street and those around you. And you would fight and you would stand in the gap. And you would pray for these people that God would open their eyes. The people along your path that God has you walking, they need your abiding presence with God. we got a lot of school teachers in here and we're about to start the new school year. Those kids, more than your knowledge and what you teach them, they need your abiding presence with God. Moses comes down the mountain in the next chapter and his face is glowing, right? And he didn't know his face is glowing. Everybody's like, whoa, this is, what, this is what the lost around us need. They need your abiding presence with God. Not your faithfulness on Sundays, although I think that's great. Not the fact that you tithe and live an upright and moral life. And that, again, is great. They need your abiding presence with God. They need you to set an alarm and wake up early and have a no negotiation time and place with God where you're going to open his word and you're going to seek and you're going to fight for his presence. And you're going to cry out on behalf of those people who don't know. And even the people that you haven't met, the millions around the world that God loves and made in His image, they need your abiding presence with God. Will you stand in the gap for them? Will you fight for God's presence? We've got three more pages of notes, and we're just going to have to end right here. In chapter 34, Moses would pray again in verse 8. Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and he worshiped and he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us for it is a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. Do you see the heart of the gospel? Emmanuel, God with us, not just any old God, we have this amazingly transcendent, sovereign God with us. There's nothing amazing about a little God going with you. It's nice to have a friend on the way, I guess, but that's not, what, that's not what this is saying. This is the God of the universe walking with us, and that is the good news of the Christian faith is that the sovereign, graceful God of the universe draws near to us a sinful people. And not that we would have to stand at the entrance of a tent and look. That what Jesus was saying with the woman at the well, that she was saying, oh, to worship God, we've got to go there. Jesus says, oh, no, no. There's coming a time when all who follow me will worship in spirit and truth. We won't have to come here. That We could worship God tomorrow morning at our cubicles or in our classrooms or on the lawnmower when we drive home, when we wake up, and when we go to bed, that we could, we could worship and experience and walk with God. The news gets even better. Because some people did see him face to face. For a time, he made his tabernacle and dwelt among us. Speaking of Christ, and he will come back. John says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only, one, only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Yahweh said to Moses, you can't see me. I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock so that you'll see, you'll see where I once was. But one day, even as we see through a glass dims, dimly, Paul says, the Holy Spirit is going to dwell in the midst of a sinful people. And we'll be able to look face to face at God and all of his goodness, all of his glory through the person of his son. Exodus is not just a story of them, but it's the timeless story of us. Of God rescuing us from our sin, delivering us from bondage, planting his presence right in the midst of us so that we would be a distinct people. And so the nations might know that there's a God who loves them. Who created them. Made all of us in his likeness. And because our sin separated us from him, he sent Jesus, his son, to die for us. We might take and believe with all faith in that death on the cross as our atonement for sin and our forgiveness. And his Holy Spirit would come and live inside of us. And lead us every step of the way. Let me pray for us. And we're going to do communion. God thank you for the gift of grace. Where these people deserved. None of your gracious kindness toward them. And yet you. Seem to heap it upon them again and again. And if we're honest Lord. Neither neither do we. If we had a tally list. Of just our sin this week. And how it separates us from you and yet we keep turning to it again and again and yet as Moses prayed that I thank you that you are going to come and dwell the people hadn't changed you're going to come and dwell amongst the stiff necked people because of your son Jesus that we can have access to you you tell us to come into the throne room with boldness the throne room of grace with boldness you've given us access You've given us comfort. You've given us your spirit that you said would lead us into all truth. God, I pray over our body. Lord, if there's any heart idols that we've just ignored, that we would repent of those things today, that we would take them off, cast them aside. We would trust in you even when we can't see your hand, Lord, that we would trust you, we would trust your heart for us. We would remember that even the worst day that we've walked through, that we would see that through the lens of the cross where you gave everything for us that we might have fellowship with you. Pray of a communion that we're about to take in just a moment as we take the bread and dip it into the drink. Jesus, would we remember your sacrifice on our behalf to bring us back to God?